Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. There's only one word that matters in business in the early days, and that is the word survival. Whilst you're alive, throw yourself 100% into whatever you do and make the best of this wonderful life that we all lead. Welcome to the Voom podcast from Virgin Media Business. I'm Nikki Beatty and we're here for the first in our new series for 2017. As always, exploring the stories of disruptive business and world-class entrepreneurs in conversation. So we talk to mavericks, innovators, risk takers, and we try to find out what it takes to change the game. And with a BDI on the next generation, we've got plenty of tips to help you unleash your business. So coming up on the show, we've got news from the all-new Voom tour. And we've got a big red bus. Uh, Absolutely fantastic. We've got a stage on there with some of last year's Voom winners, a whole load of experts offering one-to-one advice support, a pitch competition like no other. But right now, let me welcome my guests in the studio for what's going to be a food industry special. Our first guest is a man whose pedigree traces back to the late 1960s when he and his brother launched a macrobiotic restaurant that became a regular haunt for the likes of the Beatles, Mark Bolan. Building on their successes, they started Whole Earth Foods, a brand that supplied muesli to the first ever Glastonbury Festival and in only a few years became a supermarket hit with their own range of organic peanut butter. But if that isn't enough for you, in 1991, he co-founded Green and Blacks, producing the first chocolate bar containing 70% cocoa solids to be sold in the UK, which was also the first ever product to hold the fair trade symbol on its packaging. A health conscious and ethical food pioneer, I'm very pleased to say hello to Craig Sams. Hello, Craig. Hello. So, Craig, we should mention that you've since sold Whole Earth Foods and you've stepped away from the operational side of Green and Blacks, but you're still very much involved in the industry. You speak, you work with bodies like the Soil Association... And I'm very excited to hear about your story. So it's great to have you with us. And joining Craig on the show, we've also got one of the stars of last year's Voom competition, a social entrepreneur who's made it her mission to tackle food waste and food poverty in one ambitious swoop. Based in Dublin, her company Food Cloud helps retailers like supermarkets donate surplus food to charity, that sort of food that would normally have gone to 
to waste. And since launching five years ago, Food Cloud has managed to redistribute over 20 million meals across the UK and Ireland, which is a massive, massive achievement. Welcome to Food Cloud's co-founder, Isolt Ward. Hello to you, Isolt. Hello. Well, what a fantastic mission. And it's lovely to have both of you in the studio. And before we go on... Perhaps we could quickly, first of all, Isol, sum up Food Cloud and how it works in your words. So Food Cloud is a social enterprise that very simply connects supermarkets that have surplus food to charities in their community. So we've a very simple technology platform that allows anyone in a supermarket who identifies perfectly good food that they know they can't sell the next day to upload details of that food using our app or PC and notify a local charity that that food is available. If the charity can accept the offer, they simply text back and collect the food directly from the store. So we're essentially bringing food businesses and charities together in their own communities so that they can um, stop food going to waste and put it to much better use. So you also, though, apart from the hub and people interacting and making this happen, you have a fleet of collection vans, people to help with this whole process, don't you? Yeah, so on one side we have charities that collect directly from the stores and then also in Ireland we've last year launched three hubs and with the hubs we can take much larger quantities of surplus food. So just for people listening to understand the scale, what would be an amount that was too big normally? Oh, um, like pallets and pallets of one product. Right. So recently we got a donation into the depot of cream cheese, but it was in the very large catering sized tubs. So it'd be quite difficult for one charity to figure out what to do with that amount of cream cheese. And one of the charities um, we were speaking to, we were having a lot of difficulty moving it. And this is one of the benefits of having a community um, because we rang um, one chef and said, okay, you've just asked for a lot of this cream cheese. What are you doing with it? Because we are struggling to get other charities to take the cream cheese because they're not sure they'll be able to use that much. And he said, oh, I'm making cheesecake. And we were very excited about this cheesecake. So he actually made an incredible amount of cheesecake and for his own charity, obviously, but then actually brought a lot into the depot as well. And we've actually since asked him to make us more cheesecake to use as an example to other food suppliers, to other charities, to show how I suppose you can be kind of inventive with the surplus food that you're um, getting uh, in that charity specifically. So it was a completely you taste new it? idea. Yeah, it was, was it amazing. good? <laughs> yeah, no, he was so delighted that we'd spread the word to the other network of charities that he came into the team one day with a big cheesecake for uh, for our team as well. Um, but no, it was amazing to see. I suppose people approaching this situation with some level of creativity. So two entrepreneurs in the studio today with incredible stories. And whilst food is the overarching theme today, let's jump to the idea of running a business, but with a larger purpose. Uh, For you, Isolt, it's tackling food waste and food poverty. Craig, your mission seems to have been fair trade, organic produce. Why has it been important for you to put ethics at the heart of your business? My personal choices in food veer towards the organic and whole food. And when I visited a macrobiotic restaurant in New York in 1966, 
a light went on in my head and I decided to forego my career plan on graduation from university that year and to open a macrobiotic restaurant very similar, modeled on the New York one in London. And that was a mission. Uh, I wrote a book called About Macrobiotics that sold half a million copies that got the message out there. And it was a time when we, with macrobiotics, the key foods were things like brown rice, miso soup, tamari soy sauce, seaweed, stuff that nobody had ever heard of before or ever seen in a restaurant. And so we introduced the food that we were eating ourselves to a wider audience and increasingly people picked up on it. Very, very quickly, what was your career plan before you went into that restaurant? Uh, I would have graduated from university a few months later, uh, joined the Peace Corps, probably spent two years in the U.S. Navy. I'd already had Navy officer training and then a career in the probably State Department, you know, bringing about regime change worldwide. <laughs> Well, their loss is definitely our gain, I would say. So if we go back to the early days of Whole Earth Foods, how easy was it to get an organic brand off the ground in those days? Because today we have Instagram-style clean eating trends and, you know, everybody seems to have some sort of food awareness. Those days, not so, am I right? Absolutely. No, there were a lot of... A lot of organic farmers in Britain who were growing wheat and barley and oats, but when they sold it, they just sold it to a grain trader. Mm. And the fact that it was organic was purely a matter of their conscience. We opened, I opened a bakery in 1972 uh, called Sarah's Bakery. My brother would deal with British organic farmers, buy their wheat, mill it, supply it to the bakery, and then we would bake it into bread and distribute it to about 60 shops in the London area. So for those farmers, it was a great result that they saw all their conscientious production actually keeping the organic tag all the way through to the consumer and as an organic loaf of bread or an organic cake or pastry. So that, that and then we also bought those flakes those grains and flaked them and supplied them in Germany where the market for organic food was expanding, but hardly anybody was actually growing organically. I mean, that's all changed now, but it meant that we had a big export market for these farmers as well. So do people take what you were doing seriously straight away? Were you seen as a bit of a hippie brand, Whole Earth oh, Foods? Every <laughs> other month there would be an article in a newspaper or some snidey remark about, you know, these wacko hippies and their <laughs> funny food. It was, you know, it was, you still get it. You still, you know, but funnily enough, it's places like The Guardian now that have a pop at uh, excessive foodiness or, you know, clean eating and that sort of thing. But in those days, everybody thought we were... No, I didn't say everybody thought we were mad, but it was a, it was very much a minority interest, but every year it increased. And mm. you know, we started with a restaurant, then we opened a shop, then other people wanted to open shops like ours, so we started wholesaling, and then we started manufacturing, and we never looked back. But in terms of defining your brand and owning that brand, any advice for listeners trying to 
start off perhaps as you did with an idea that was different from other people and needing to push that forward into a market? We had a, a lot of education as part of what we were doing. You know, every customer needed to have a kind of lecture about what organic was, why it was better for you, why brown rice was better for you, why you should avoid sugar. So we did all of that. And a lot of our advertising was educational. As I said, I wrote a book. Um, we made a mistake on our brand. Our, our original brand was Harmony. Oh. And which kind of was the embodiment of the Taoist yin yang philosophy that drove macrobiotics. Uh, we got to a certain size, and when we were expanding into Europe, we discovered that somebody in Holland owned the Harmony brand, somebody in Germany had a brand called Harmony in the categories that we wanted to be in. So we had to go back to the drawing board and create Whole Earth as a brand that we knew nobody else would have. So I think one thing that we learned is don't get excited about a brand if you're going to want to go global because somebody else might already have it somewhere else. So in terms of actually getting the story across to people, um, was that a very important part of your process, we your actually, beliefs? We published a mag... We called our restaurant Seed because we saw it as a seed for a new way of eating. When we, in 1971, we published a magazine called Seed, the Journal of Organic Living. And that brought in all the other lifestyle aspects, everything from Chinese astrology to permaculture, the kind of stuff that was tangential but important mm. to anybody who was eating organic food. And so that magazine, which was largely supported by advertising from our shop, our wholesale business and our bakery, who took full-page ads every month. That kept that magazine going, but we had 7,000 circulation and a much bigger readership, and that's where those seminal ideas were first propagated. So education, education, education was really the key to making the business work. So, Isolt, um, most people listening will automatically agree that Food Cloud is a noble idea. It's a brilliant idea on paper. Probably an incredibly complex operation to get off the ground and that too, build your community around it. So, in the same way as I just asked Craig, how do you get people to buy in and believe Food Cloud's mission? How have you achieved that? Yeah, it was an interesting journey because when we first started in Ireland, food donation was only happening on a very informal ad hoc basis. So the majority of charities we initially approached weren't familiar with the idea and there was a stigma around this idea of serving people waste food. You know, I suppose they didn't want to be seen to be treating their clients with less respect by giving them this waste food. So there was similarly an education piece where we had to really demonstrate this food isn't waste, it's actually perfectly good edible food. And one of the big benefits of it is that um, a lot of the food mightn't be food that charities would normally purchase. So you're getting a lot more variety, random fruit and vegetables. Like what? 
Um, well, say the first relationship that we set up was actually a farmer's market to a local charity. It was before we had technology. It was literally we found a farmer's market that opened two days a week and it was a Wednesday and a Saturday. So they had perfectly good food left at the end of the day that wouldn't last until, the, say, the Saturday to sell it again. And they were a very good organisation to start working with because the producers were so close to the food that they really did not want to see this food going to waste. Mm. So we linked them up with a local charity and this charity started receiving gourmet sausages, artisan breads, this food from farmers market that they never would have been able to afford food of such a high quality before. So all of a sudden they were seeing these other benefits of the food beyond the fact that it was a free supply of surplus food. It was higher value food very often. So when did the first supermarket jump on board? How did that happen? About a year after we launched with that farmer's market, um, I was still studying in university and my co-founder even had actually had to move to London to work. Um, so we were running it on a very, very part-time basis. And I think it was just before I graduated, we were struggling to really get it to go to the next level and to get more food businesses to sign up. And obviously one of the big reasons was we weren't working on this full time. And for a food business to sign up to something that's such a new idea is quite complex. They definitely don't want to work with two part-time students who are doing this and wanted to see a more professional setup. So as soon as I graduated, I'd started working on this full time. And we realized that if we really wanted to achieve scale, we needed a supermarket as a partner. About two months after I graduated, we did a lot of research with charities around Dublin and found out from them the types of food that would really benefit them. We began approaching all of the supermarkets and say, saying, this is the solution that we want to develop. This is the feedback from charities. This is the benefits that it could have. We know you have a lot of food waste. And Tesco then said, OK, we'll give it a trial in one of our stores in Dublin. So we ran a trial with them for six months um, across 18 of their stores from their smallest to their largest. And the trial was fortunately very successful. And that was when we got our first contract with a retailer. So from there, began to grow the team and quite quickly build a network of charities across Ireland. And in terms of the way the business runs, because it's a social enterprise, mm. isn't it? What's the balance between profit and purpose? Well, we're a registered charity, so we're non not for profit. Any um, surplus income that we generate will be directly reinvested into the organisation and never distributed to shareholders. We don't have any. So I suppose we're predominantly purpose focused, but because we also hold a strong value about being a social enterprise. So, you know, our long term ambition is to be completely financially self-sustaining. And Craig, throughout your career, community has been a really big theme around your products, whether you've been nurturing the natural food community through whole earth foods or supporting cocoa farming communities in Togo through Green and Black's chocolate. Maybe you could talk to us a little bit about uh, the original green and black Maya Gold bar because in chocolate and fair trade history, it's, it's a really good case study for us, isn't it? Well, we were getting our organic cacao from Togo in West Africa 
Um, there were serious political problems there when the ruler didn't get elected and uh, decided he was going to use the army to stay in power. So it all got a bit grim. We carried on with Togo, but we were looking for other sources. I had been in Belize a few times over the previous four or five years and knew there were cocoa farmers. In fact, that's where I first saw a cocoa pod growing on a tree, which really kind of got me going in a way. I went to Belize where a cocoa project had failed, really. The farmers were abandoning their cacao because the price had dropped from $1.75 a pound to 55 cents a pound, and they just thought this isn't worth it anymore. But they'd planted trees that were, you know, mature. It was, it was a shame to see all that go to waste. We offered them a guaranteed minimum price with upward-only revisions, we offered them a five-year contract so they knew we were going to be there. We guaranteed we would buy every cocoa bean that they produced. We went to their bank and persuaded their bank manager, who was about to start repossessing land that was secured against loans, and put money in the bank so that they stayed quiet. And then I came back to England, bumped into Mike Drury of the Fair Trade Foundation, who said, why don't you go for the fair trade mark? And I said, well, what exactly do we have to do? Mm. And he ran through a list of things, and we were doing all of that and more. He and a guy from Oxfam, Bill Yates, flew out to Belize, uh, checked it out, and agreed that we were doing everything that was compliant with the fair trade mark. And uh, that was in March of 1994. We launched Maya Gold, which was based on a Maya cocoa recipe, but we had translated it into a chocolate bar recipe. It was launched at the BBC Good Food Show on the Oxfam stand in March of 94. And it was a huge wave of support because all the organizations that had been part of the Fair Trade Foundation, Women's Institutes, Oxfam, Catholic Fund for Overseas Development, Christian Aid, World Development Movement, all really got behind it. We had vicars in their pulpits telling their parishioners, go forth and multiply the sales of this product because <laughs> it's, you know, it's got the fair trademark. And very quickly, bananas, coffee, uh, sugar, tea, those companies, Clipper, Cafe Direct, they came in with fair trade products too once they saw the scale of support for the brand. So it was a real catalyst then, wasn't it? In many it was, ways. We are immensely grateful to the Fair Trade Foundation for putting us on the map. And I think they are still immensely grateful to us for getting that mark out. And we were in supermarkets already, so it had a high profile. You know, people could go out and find it if they wanted it. It was right there. And who did this brand in particular impact? We hadn't really a full vision of what the impact would be. We were you know, nakedly self-interested at one level. <laughs> we needed organic cacao. And you know, anybody else in the cocoa industry could just pick up the phone to a broker in New York or London or Rotterdam and say, send me five container loads of cocoa beans to a factory in Switzerland or New York or whatever. Right. We couldn't do that because we were organic. So we had to really work with the farmers from the ground up. No chocolate companies were doing that at that time. The middlemen were, you know, exporters in a country had 
coyotes, they called them in Belize, the guy who would turn up in a village in a pickup truck and say, okay, bring out your cocoa beans. Oh, by the way, the price has just dropped to 55 cents or whatever. And the farmers had no choice. That guy wasn't going to be back for six months. They had to take the money or sit on their stock. So we pioneered that. And that was really, I think, the most important thing. And our customers... The consumers loved the fact that there was a real connection, that they, there were real people at the other end of the supply chain. When we went to supermarkets with cocoa pods, the supermarket buyers would say, blow me, so what? The beans grow in these pods on trees. People didn't, that kind of awareness of the whole supply chain didn't mm -hmm. exist 20 odd years ago. But that connection now, every major chocolate company, including the people who own Greed and Blacks, now have direct relationships with the farmers. It's all modeled on what we did because they have to, we needed it because we wanted organic cacao. They want it because if they don't treat the farmers right, those farmers will, you know, someone from Michelin is saying, plant rubber trees. Some from, from, from Unilever is saying, oh, grow oil palm. Mm. Someone else is saying, grow cashew nuts. People are moving from peanuts to cashews. So there's a bit of self-interest, making sure your supply chain is secure. But also, consumers now expect that level of integrity right down to the farmer in the origin of Ghana or Belize or wherever that nobody's getting screwed along the way. So where do you draw your line, or where did you draw your line at this point, in this case, between profit and purpose? If you make a profit, it means you're doing the right thing. I believe in doing good and doing well. We had a few scary episodes along the way. We nearly went bust in 1982, um, you know, neither me nor my brother really understood cash flow. <laughs> and uh, we had loads of stock in a warehouse, but we didn't have any money. So ever since then, I've been fully concentrated on profitability and liquidity, having enough cash to pay your bills, because a lot of companies are profitable, but unless the bank bails them out, they can easily go down in flames. So, I mean, did you struggle at any point? Did you, did you take the wrong decisions? We were on the verge. We actually, our accountancy firm advised us to go to the bank and ask them to put in a receiver. But a junior at the accountancy firm said to me, you know, if you do it yourself, you could be your own receiver. So I actually, my brother took one of our products, the Veggie Burger, that was the first ever veggie burger. Mm -hmm. He made a huge success of it, but left me holding the baby, which was fine with me. Um, but I learned an awful lot about cash flow. We took a three million pound business and took it down to 800,000 in turnover, but it went from losing a couple of grand a month to making five or six grand a month. And that, that, that was a big lesson for me, that volume is vanity, profit is sanity.
You're listening to the Voom podcast from Virgin Media Business. This is the first episode in our brand new 2017 series. So as the official launch of the Voom competition approaches in the coming months, there's a hive of Voom activity happening across the country in support of small business, startups and innovation. So to catch up on all the latest, including the brand new Voom tour, here's Chris Reed. So hi, I'm Chris Reed. I have been to all of the Voom tour stops so far. I'm going to go around all of the remaining stops and reporting back on uh, some of the things that we've seen. Uh, we're taking a big red bus all around the country, talking to entrepreneurs, startups. We're running one-to-one sessions, offering advice on everything from social media through to advertising, crowdfunding, and at each stop, we're hosting a pitch competition like no other. We're inviting people from local cities to enter online and then we're choosing six people to pitch to an esteemed panel of judges. They have two minutes to tell their story, then two minutes of questions before those judges go away and decide who is gonna win 5,000 pounds and brunch with Richard Branson. Our job is to help every small business succeed. We've had some fantastic pictures, and even those that haven't gone on to win the competition, we've been able to help out in many other ways. So I've sat through, what, 24 pictures so far, and the quality they have all shown is absolutely excellent. Some of my favourites, I have to say, are the tech ones, uh, but some of the food ones I've been really impressed with include Maria from the Skinny Sauce Company, and I really enjoyed the St. Ames chocolates. I've never, ever had a luxury chocolate before with a bit of gold leaf on top, but I'll tell you what, I'll be going back to Harvey Nicks and Selfridges to try some of those. First up, Let's hear St. Ames Chocolates. I'm Lois and this is my co-founder, Michaela, and we are the founder of St. Ames. St. Ames is a luxury chocolate company. We create beautiful edible art in London that's almost too beautiful to eat. So we've all had the experience when you're looking for a gift for an acquaintance, you know, what do you buy them? Do you buy them a book? It's too political. Perfume and jewelry, far too personal. Chocolate really fills a gap in the market for a, you know, an accessible kind of gift. But when you mark chocolate, what's existing in the market. Against the criteria for gifting, we feel it lags behind. Some brands focus on packaging, others focus on unique taste. We say, why stop there? We gild each chocolate with 23 karat gold, we enhance it with opulent color, and we entice your mind with the unique story behind every single chocolate. So, in the, unique, in the small time we're running our business, we opened St. Ames, the brand, in uh, December, November 2016. And in a short time, we've already got into Harvey Nichols, Selfridges, and Fennec. So our why, why Stop There approach has really influenced industry. And if you think chocolate's just a kitchen business, you'd be wrong. Did you know that chocolate is number one British food export? Did you know that when upgrading to a premium purchase of choice, consumers actually choose chocolate over coffee or alcohol to spend more on? I think that it's really tempting, sorry my handshakes, I'm not actually nervous, it's just like I have a twitch. (laughs) I think it's really tempting to um, get swept away with the digital world, but we are physical creatures. And so long as we are physical, we'll need something that is in the physical world. And we create something that when you gift it to people, when you share with people, it means a lot, a lot goes into it. We're disrupting the world and we want you all to be a part of it. Saintames.com, thank you. Uh, So that was a fantastic pitch there. A lot of pressure getting that through in two minutes. Let's hear Maria from the Skinny Sauce Company. 
Hello, my name is Maria Dorn and I am the founder of The Skinny Sauce Company. The Skinny Sauce Company is the UK's first line of sugar-free, gluten-free and all natural tabletop sauces. The problem here is sugar, a substance that is known to be more addictive than cocaine. Did you know that the average bottle of sweet chili sauce contains 56% sugar? Yes, that's right. Th that means that this amount of sweet chili sauce has the same amount of sugar as this can of Coke. Now, I don't know about you, but when I'm on a diet, I don't drink that can of Coke, so why would I pour that all over my meal? So what can you do? You can just avoid sauce. But you know, that makes diet very boring and unsustainable from my previous history. But the most important thing about the Skinny Sauce Company is that we only use natural sweetness. We don't use any of those artificial sweeteners that big, large corporations use that get such bad headlines. I have spent months in the kitchen creating a recipe that I am very proud of and we're now ready to launch on the last week of June. This is why we live by the mantra, Skinny Sauce, but Big flavor. So our online, our, our revenue model is very, um, has proved hugely, hugely successful for other companies like myself. We plan to sell online through a social e-commerce model. And in the lifestyle sector, that is where you need to be. You need to be on Instagram. You need to be on Facebook. So hopefully we'll be stocked in some local delis to start with, but we want to be listed on the premium supermarket shelves. Um, so the food market is changing with 88% of people willing to pay more for products that aid weight loss and that actually are healthy. So I want you to skinny dip more often with the Skinny Sauce Company and come with me on my journey. Thank you. Oh, and Voom means Voom for me because see this 5,000 pounds, that will get me to launch. So I actually need a bit of Voom in my business. Thank you. Fair play to these guys, getting all of that information across in less than two minutes is not an easy job. The judges have had a, a real dilemma trying to work out who to give this £5,000 prize to each location we've been to. If you've got a great idea for a business or you're an entrepreneur looking to pitch your business idea, search up Voom Tour online, fill in the details and you could be next up pitching to us with the chance to win £5,000 and brunch with Richard Branson. Thank you to Chris Reed and all the companies sharing their pitches with us on the Voom Tour. We'll have more from Chris in the coming weeks, but if you'd like to get involved and sign up to the pitch, just search Voom Tour for more information on those dates, starting with Manchester on the 6th and 7th of September, Birmingham on the 28th of September and Cardiff on the 5th of October. Well, I was at the Voom Bus inaugural event just a few months ago. Great atmosphere. And and Isolt, you joined the Voom bus in Dublin, didn't you? And you essentially judged some of the pitches. So what was the level like? Yeah, it was actually very impressive. It was very interesting being on the other side of it, having obviously gone through the pitching competition um, last year and being reconnected with a lot of the Voom team as well was brilliant. So I'm going to ask you about memorable pitches in your time. Now, whether you've made them and they've been good or bad or somebody's pitched to you. It... I think the one is two memorable pitches. Okay. Uh, the, and they were closely related. Uh, somebody came to me oh, about probably 15 years ago with a formula for... Uh, paper plates and cups based on potato starch ah. that would be completely compostable because that's there's a huge amount of wood waste if you like or paper waste in catering and you know just coffee mugs and things that get wasted 
And it, I was really excited about it, and we did some trials with it. But then we poured boiling water into one, and the bottom fell out. <laughs> and we, it was back to the drawing board, and we never heard from them again. <laughs> However, about three months ago, someone who owns a Gart Gallery in the Portobello Road, mm. of all people, uh, came to me, and he's cracked the problem. And... You know, it's quite exciting, and I probably shouldn't be talking about it, but we're on it. We love and, an exclusive. Well, the idea of being able to take those paper cups and get them back into the soil rather than ending up in landfill or incinerators is really exciting. And I think it, it's you know, the amount of tea and coffee and hot drinks and cold drinks that people drink mm. You know, it, we need something like that, and it's, it seems he's got there. Well, that sounds and it's hugely patented, exciting. so I can talk about it. Okay, well, then, but that's hugely exciting, Craig. How does it feel looking back on the companies that you've founded today? I mean, what would be your proudest moments? I think the real result with Fair Trade and Maya Gold, mm. you know, that was so transformative. When we sold the business, well, even before we sold the business to Cadbury, their technical director went out to Belize, saw what we were doing, and created something called the Cadbury Cocoa Partnership, which was a £40 million investment in mirroring what we had done direct by trading direct with farmers, giving them the security, etc. Cadbury then got taken over, and it's now part of Mondelez, and they took that program invested $400 million in it, called it the Cocoa Life Partnership, and it's rolled out across Ghana, Ivory Coast, and various other places. And they're really putting weight behind it. So kids are getting education, women are being empowered, farmer incomes are up. Uh, the They've just led a Coke chocolate industry guarantee of zero deforestation and all of that had its roots in some tiny little thing we did mm. largely to protect our supply chain and seeing seeing that unfolding i was skeptical a few years ago but seeing how it's unfolded it's hugely gratifying to me and joe my co-founder and wife to see that what we did has now basically is the way the chocolate industry has to operate and does operate. Well, congratulations. You're listening to the Voom podcast from Virgin Media Business. It's a food special. We thought we'd take a quick detour, though, to check out a futuristic trend that could revolutionise the farming industry. Here's entrepreneur Kate Hoffman to explain more. My name's Kate Hoffman and I'm the co-founder and CEO of Grow Up Urban Farms and we run the UK's largest commercial aquaponic urban farm which is based inside a warehouse in East London where we farm tilapia which is a freshwater fish and we take that wastewater from the fish farm we use that as the nutrient base for our hydroponic vertical farm where we grow salad and herb plants the plants absorb that waste nutrients from the water from the fish and the whole system recirculates. The type of farming that we do is controlled environment agriculture which means that we're based indoors and we can control all aspects of that growing environment. 
So whether that's the temperature of the water for the fish through to the lights that we provide for the plants or the humidity and temperature inside that grow room, it means we can grow a consistent quality and quantity of food all year round. If you came to visit Unit 84, our farm, from the outside, you'd probably think you were just looking at any other industrial unit. But when you go inside, the farm's divided into three different areas. So we've got our aquaculture room where we've got 12 large fish tanks, uh, each holding our tilapia. And then we've got our hydroponic room, which looks a little bit like something that you might see at NASA, I guess, because you open the door and on either side of you, there's 10 vertically stacked layers going up five and a half metres. And each one of those layers has a set of LED lights on. And those LED lights are growing different salad crops on each of the benches going up five and a half metres. There are several advantages to farming this way. And it certainly is a technology that you should be using to grow certain crops in certain places. So it absolutely makes sense to grow salad leaves and herbs in this kind of growing environment. They're perishable, they have a, a short shelf life and they don't really travel very well. So the closer you can grow them to consumers, the better quality they are when they arrive on the shelf or in, in your kitchen. So they'll last longer and they're less likely to go to waste. We're also much more water efficient than traditional agriculture because we're taking that wastewater from the fish farm system and putting it through into our into our hydroponic system. We're powered by 100% renewable energy and the more we develop the business and the more opportunity we have to grow, the more efficient we get with that energy use and the more we're able to optimise the resources and how we share energy and heat and water between the fish farming and the plant growing side of things. There's not just good environmental reasons for farming this way there's also a really strong business case behind it and that's primarily in the UK around how we can secure our food production and not be so reliant on imports I think particularly now with Brexit people are starting to get quite concerned about what that's going to mean for not only importing food but also importing labour into the agricultural and, and food processing businesses so the more we can do to create local food production and create a more resilient food system not only is that better for us as a country but it also makes good economic sense the benefit from a business perspective of doing this kind of farming is being able to offer a consistent price and product to the market all year round and that's something that our customers tell us is really interesting to them and on top of that the type of technology that we use and being able to control that growing environment means that we can offer a safer and less risky product uh, to, to the end consumer because there's less risk of contamination from bacteria. I think like any small business, you know, it's, it's it can be a real challenge setting up and doing something new. And, you know, over the last four and a half years, we've had a lot of interesting learning experiences. We've had some great successes and, you know, we've we've learned things that we probably would do differently next time round. But what I can really see is that there's a huge demand and a huge interest in the type of technology and growing systems that we're using. And I firmly believe that this kind of farming is going to be part of a, a sustainable future of, of food production. I don't think that all food is going to be grown in vertical farms in the future, because I think for a number of reasons, that's that's probably unrealistic. But I think it definitely makes sense for us to be looking at vertical aquaponic farming as part of a more holistic and sustainable food system. You can find out more about Grow Up Urban Farms by visiting our website growup.org.uk and you'll also find us on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram so drop us a line and say hi. Hi.
Thank you to Kate Hoffman there of Grow Up Urban Farms. And what a fascinating concept. Could vertical farming and fish poo really be the future to the food industry? Uh, let us know what you think. You can tweet at Virgin and use the hashtag Voom. That's nearly it for this show, but back in the studio with Craig and Isolt, I just wanted to ask you both, where do you think the next exciting food industry trends might be, particularly when it comes to combining profit with purpose? I know, Craig, you're quite familiar with vertical farming for a start, so that might not surprise you. We at Carbon Gold supply biochar to Dutch greenhouse growers, and the Dutch industry has made a commitment to have zero pesticide use within the next 10 years. They're phasing it out right, left, and center using biological controls, like insects that eat the bad insects, that sort of thing. And they're all now using biochar as a part of a hydroponic system because it keeps the biology alive. One of the criticisms of vertical farming and hydroponics is it's just completely dependent on fertilizer, but then you get diseases and you need to spray. When So I'm very keen on vertical farming because it's exploding as a market for Carbon Gold's products mm -hmm. because it's putting the biology, it's keeping the biology alive in a system that otherwise, because it's the nutrients are running through. It's not like being in soil where you build up biology. You have to keep it into you have to keep it in the system some other way, and biochar is what helps to do that. In fact, one of our directors also now has a company where they have containers that you can just put in the parking lot of a supermarket and so that you can vertically farm Fresh produce, you know, everybody wants these little baby salad greens. That's one of the areas that vertical farming really works for. But other, other salad-y type products so that they're literally cut at 6 o'clock in the morning and they're on the shelf in the supermarket at 8 o'clock in the morning. So it's freshness that is the real sell. But you also have to have uh, a reduction in those pesticide residues that are the kind of heritage of old school hydroponics but the whole industry is moving away from that really quickly and vertical farming is part of it. So in asking you for exciting food industry trends you are that exciting food industry well, trend. Well we're part of yes. that trend and we really are excited about it. Yeah. Isel, what about you? What do you see as maybe exciting food industry trends on the way? So I suppose I'm kind of coming at it from the waste angle and one of the things I've found very interesting lately is that people are seeing value in what traditionally would have been considered waste streams. Mm. So say, for example, there's a new ale, that toast ale that was launched in the UK and now they've actually launched in the US. An amazing idea where they actually are making beer from surplus bread. And there's a constant supply of um, surplus bread, unfortunately, at the moment. Um, other organisations like Ruby's in the Rubble, where they're making jams and chutneys out of surplus fruit and vegetables. So even last year's boom winner, um, BioBean, taking uh, waste coffee grounds and yeah. turning that into um, fuel pallets and biofuel and coffee logs and really just 
re-looking at how we treat food through production and manufacturing, identifying waste streams and seeing what the potential value from those streams are. I think that's something that will create a lot of new cool products um, in future, but also really identify new value where that value wasn't considered before. And what you've both done, not only in in the businesses that you've created, but also you, you're raising a level of consciousness about the planet, which which is is just marvelous. And before we finish the show today, I'd just like to ask for a piece of advice from both of you that you would give to someone trying to start an impact business, uh, one with ethics at its core, perhaps. Craig, can I come to you? I'll repeat myself to a certain extent, cash flow. Watch your cash. Mm. Make sure your liquidity is always there. It doesn't matter who loves you or how much you're selling. If you can't pay your bills, forget it. Great advice. Craig Sams, thank you. Isselt Ward, what about you? Um, like Similarly, I don't think it's uh, profit versus purpose. I think looking at the two of them together is what's really going to ensure that you create a sustainable solution that also has the potential to scale. Um, because it's great to have purpose at the forefront of what you're doing, but if it's not going to be here in five years and if it doesn't have the ability to grow, then, you know, there's something wrong. So I think having the both of them uh, together is very important. Thank you both so much. It's been fabulous to have you as part of our first Voom podcast for 2017. And uh, may you both go from strength to strength. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you again to my guests, Craig Sams and Isolt Ward, and also to Chris Reed and all our pitchers on the Voom tour. Remember, to find out more or to sign up to pitch, you head to virginmediabusiness.co.uk slash Voom, where you can also find out about our Voom Fibre, the new business broadband network that's over four times faster than most other national providers. The Voom podcast is a Pixie production for Virgin Media Business. We'll be back with more entrepreneurial tales in two weeks' time. But until then, from me, Nikki Beatty, goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>